2 Samuel chapter 6. Let me read through this whole chapter with you. Can you guys see it on the screen all right? Okay. We'll read it and then we'll pray and we'll dive right on in. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it out before the house of Abinadab which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassinets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nechon, which ironically means stability, ironically enough, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. They stumbled in stability. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there besides the ark. We all wrapping our mind around that? That's intense. So David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perez Uzzah which is breach against Uzzah or breakout, breach, division. So this day, or to this day, it's called that. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of God of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household by the way, a foreigner, probably a Philistine, Obed-Eden, blessing a Gentile. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Eden and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David had a second go. He went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Eden to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in his heart, in her heart, excuse me. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each person. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David, and she said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father, by the way, and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, Michal, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Ooh, what a packed full chapter. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would guide us through it. 
let us understand the, uh, the whoop and the wharf of this chapter, what the point is, what you're trying to say to us, and how we can follow you. Also, would you bless our hearts? I pray that you would sift through the meditations of our own minds, of our own hearts, the things that we're dealing with, the things that we're dealing with openly, but also the things we're dealing with secretly, um, the nuances, the private things that only you know about. Would you move into every space, every nook and cranny of our heart, and would you help us give you permission to do that? You're such a gentleman. You're not going to barge in. Lord, help us to understand what's going on here and what's going on in us. May this be like a mirror. May we look into it and see ourselves and see our own story. And I just ask humbly that you'd help me to do a good job of kind of tour guiding folks through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. This story, you guys, has it all. It has everything you want to know about the Bible. It's got everything in it. Um, it, everything you'd ever want to know about the, the grand meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible, and the gospel story itself, it's all represented right here in this little story. First of all, this story describes the problem. The problem, the plot of the entire Bible, and I would say the problem of the human condition. Secondly, it points to the answer, the answer to that problem. And thirdly, it gives us a taste of the results. Did you notice all the joy, all the dancing? It gives us a taste of where we all want to be. Okay, so let's dive in. First, this describes the dynamic plot that actually serves to move the literary narrative through the scriptures. This is the dynamic plot of the Bible. David's kingdom is prospering at this point. It's expanding. We've talked about this. We're in a time from around chapter 5 to about chapter 10. We're going to see kind of the zenith prosperity of David's kingdom. It just goes from better to better to better, and we're in that season. All the 12 tribes of Israel have now sworn allegiance to David. It's a united kingdom. Um, surrounding kings are now giving David materials and money and resources to build himself a house and to build up Jerusalem, the capital city. The Philistines, Israel's ancient arch nemesis, has finally been defeated. So what's the problem here? What's the problem of the passage? Anybody know? What's the problem of this passage that David's out to fix? I'm going to drink some coffee while you guys think about that. The ark, yes. Who's the ark and what's the problem with the ark? Selah, well done. And what's the problem? Why, what's wrong with the ark? Yes, and where's it supposed to be? Uh, yes, but specifically, it's supposed to be with God's people. Yes, that is the problem. The problem here is the presence of God is not with the people of God. That's the problem. And that is the problem with our world. The presence of God is not with the people of God. This is the biggest problem in the Bible. If you're wanting to know what the plot line of the Bible is, this is it. In Genesis chapter 1, it goes all the way back to the beginning it is explicitly clear that mankind is made for the purpose of dwelling in the presence of God. That is the fire in which all of you were forged. You were made to be in God's presence. You were made to experience his love. And that's where fulfillment comes from. That's where peace comes from. All your hopes, everything you want, everything you dream of, all your passions are tied up and being with him, and being with his presence. But God commanded that mankind trust and obey him, and that the moment they didn't, what would happen? It's the D word, death. They would die. And unfortunately, our ancestors decided not 
to trust and obey God. And what happened? They died. But, yes, okay. But what did the first death look like? Yeah, that's right. Death in the Bible from the very beginning, biblical death, the death that the Bible wants your brain to think about when you think of the word death is exile from God's presence. It's not necessarily a cessation of processes or ceasing to exist. That would be a lowercase d. That's a result. But the capital D, death, is separation from God from which all the lowercase d deaths and fallouts and diseases and problems and abuses and all the things we see, the wars, the power, all of that flows from this main separation from the presence of God. That is the problem. God cast them out of his presence east of Eden and the rest of the Bible is God, the whole Bible is God making a way for him to be with his people again. He's making a way for, for a sinful people to come back into his holy presence again. That is, that it, this is the plot that drives the whole thing forward. That's why this chapter that we're in is so, so important. But by the time we get to Exodus in the wilderness of Sinai at the mountain of God, God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle that is decorated like the garden of God. It's embroidered on the fabric walls like a garden, and it looks like a garden. There's even the presence of cherubim that are represented there. And he instructs Moses to, uh, to build this tabernacle, and he also instructs him to build the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we're dealing with here this morning. This was um, about 400 years before the time of David. God instructs Moses to build this ark. The ark was a wooden box overlaid with gold. It was three feet, nine inches long, two feet, nine inches tall, two feet, nine inches, uh, three inches uh, wide. In it were, the, were, were three things, um, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, uh, a jar of manna. God told them to put these remembrances in there. And also Aaron's rod that miraculously budded to signify that God had given Aaron's house authority to lead the children of, of Israel, the nation of Israel. Those three, all things, by the way, all three of those artifacts marking some element of Israel's failure. So, you know, the Ten Commandments, they broke all ten of them before he, they were even able to be delivered. <laughs> um, uh, they rebelled against the authority. So that, that whole episode with Aaron's rod budding was actually a, a correction to the children of Israel for rebelling against Moses and Aaron. Manna is God's provision, but also represented them grumbling about it. That's what's inside, but overlaid over the top, the lid on top of the ark was this impressive solid gold slab um, with two sculptures of cherubim at the top and this was known as the mercy seat so you've got the inside of this box you've got the sins of Israel in the wilderness really rebellious sins and over the top of this is a, a mercy seat that in Exodus 25 God says I will meet you I will be with you I'll meet you at my mercy seat that's his throne the ark then represents the immediate presence and glory of God in Israel. That's a way of saying it's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. Listen to this. This is from Exodus 29. God minces no words in telling his point, his whole point in why he told Moses to build the tabernacle and to build the ark. Here's what he says. He says, there in the tabernacle, in the garden-esque tabernacle, there I will meet with the people of Israel. And it shall be sanctified from my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. There's the plot. This is what God's trying to fix. He wants to be with his people. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I can dwell with them. Hear that? I saved them from Egypt, not as an end in and of itself. 
I save them so that I can dwell with them. I can be with them because that is why they were made. I am the Lord their God. God wants to be with his people. First of all, we just need to start there before we get into the whole as a thing and all of those things. God is the one that is interested and that is active and that is initiating closeness with, with mankind. Clearly, throughout the Bible, this is where God told the people of Israel that he would meet them and his presence would set them apart as a contrast culture, his very presence, not the color of their skin, not where they're from, not their skill set, not their language, none of those things. What would set Israel apart, his people apart, would that, would that these are the people that dwell with God. They're like, they walk, you know, they're with him. That's what makes them a contrast culture. And that was the key to them flourishing. But when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel, if you've been with us through the Samuel series, you'll know, keep with this in mind, with all this context in mind that I just gave you, 1 Samuel 4, the worst happens. Do you remember what happened in 1 Samuel 4? Israel is no longer in the wilderness at this point. They're now in the promised land and they're facing their arch enemies, the Philistines, in this huge battle, the battle of Aphek. They're going to war with them and because of Israel's corruption and gross sin, 30,000 men of Israel die that day. All of Israel's leaders are killed that day and because of the context of what I just told you, worst of all, the Philistines capture the ark. Put yourself in a Jewish person's mind after all of this ark importance through Moses. This is the representation of their God leaving. In fact, the, cha uh, the chapter ends with this pronouncement over the nation of Israel Ichabod, you know, the glory, the word glory is the word kabod in the Hebrew. Ichabod means left, no more. The glory of God has departed. The presence of God is no longer with his, his precious people, his treasure of a nation. The presence of God is gone. This is the story of a death to a nation. It was so tragic. It was one of those things for the nation of Israel, you know, like 9-11 for us, something big. And their kids would ask him, were, were you there, the Battle of Aphek? Yeah, it was horrible. They would tell their children about that. It was an epic, epic turn in their national life. The Ark of God was out of Israel's cultic life. They were out of Israel's national life. There was no worship. There was no, it, was, it was gone. And even though the ark of the Lord came back and defeated the Philistines by itself without an army, and it came back into Israelite territory in chapter 7, chapter 6 and chapter 7, the Israelites still didn't get it. They tried to crack open the lid and look inside of it. And God broke out. Again, Perez, he broke out on them and killed thousands of them for their irreverence. That's what we're going to do. Here we are again. So it's, there's still this separation between mankind and God. And David knew it. David, as king, knows this isn't right. He gets the plot line of the Bible. He gets the story. He understands this is where nation, the nation of Israel, my people are in God's redemptive history and us being outside of God's presence is not right. As king, I've got to fix this. He goes about it. He goes about it. I mean, we can read about it right here. And David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to, for the purpose to bring up from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts. That's Yahweh uh, Saboeth, which is a war name, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set out the ark on a new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, 
the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, accompanied, accompanying the ark of God. And, and Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music. They know it's a joyful occasion. We're talking about the presence of God coming back to his people. This is like time to party. Party time. This is, this is amazing. So they, all the Lord, the instruments fur of wood, of harps, of strings, instruments. You know, they've got the guy on stilts. They've got the, I mean, the whole thing is going on. It's a big party. You can see it in your head, can't you? It's like a giant parade. It's a huge event, a huge event. David has 30,000 elite fighters. Like his, like the Navy SEALs are out there in front. Valiant men of Israel to protect the ark. Um, in perfect formation. There's all this music and celebration. I mean, picture like the Macy's Day Parade or something. It's this big deal. Because finally, the ark is coming back where it belongs. And God's presence is going to be re reunited with his people. Now, you can notice too, I'm sure you've already, you made, maybe you've made note that David had a brand new ark construct, uh, or cart constructed for the ark. It's like a, you know, a, a uh, cart that had not been used for anything else. They didn't grab a used one. They didn't, you know, retire it from um, its normal work. No, they made it specifically custom for the ark. David is prepared to um, drop resources to make this as prestigious as possible. An old cart just won't do. And this seems great. And if you were an onlooker, you'd probably be admiring David's heart in this. He wants to give God the greatest and the best thing to have the symbol of God's presence. Yet the careful reader will realize, if you've been with us and been uh, listening, um, it doesn't ever go well when we don't hear a record of David not inquiring of the Lord first. Usually he inquires of the Lord and things go good. And when he doesn't, things don't go quite so good. And here, unfortunately, we don't have any record of him inquiring of the Lord. And so he does this in disobedience. David, a man who went to God before doing battle, apparently didn't seek God about doing this. David was wise enough, on the one hand, to rightly understand the surface of the problem. God's presence is supposed to be with God's people. Check. That's good. But he wasn't wise enough to understand just how big the problem was. This is not something that a human can solve. That's the problem here. David, apparently, with good intentions, um, went rather cavalierly down to the presence of God and decided, we'll just fix this ourselves. Easy fix. We can just make this happen. This was doing the right thing in the wrong way because he didn't understand just how insoluble, how wide the breach is. David thought that bringing up back to God's presence was would be simple. But for one thing, God commanded in Exodus 25 that the ark was never to be transported on a cart. And I think for obvious reasons, a cart can make the thing tip. It's supposed to be carried by people through, with poles. There, there's a, uh, you know, rings in the sides of the ark. Poles go through it and the Levites carry it through. If one guy stumbles, the other one, can, they, they can stabilize it. A cart, you know, um, it's a little bit more, maybe more expedient, but a little bit prone to disaster. That's exactly what ends up happening here. Maybe he thought that, that his good intentions overruled his uh, lazy um, research, his lazy disobedience. David might have thought, who cares how we honor God as long as God is just honored? We're going to bring it, who cares how we do it? But the reality is, God is concerned with both our intentions and our actions. And this, I think, this shows David's lack of understanding of just how big the problem is here. And look what happens. When they come to Nahon, thresh, uh, uh, Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand, another probably great intentions, put out his hand to, to steady the ark, took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. Oh, I'm supposed to probably, I'm doing this now. Um, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. Wow. 
And David became angry because the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Breach. That's the word that we're operating with today. Breach. That's the problem. We are told that the ark was transported by being placed in this ox cart, and it was passing this threshold. Again, named stability, ironically. I think that that's a, maybe a clue. Where, where they're thinking they're sure, where they're so confident that nothing can go wrong, the worst actually happens. The ark stumbles. Uzzah reaches out instinctually to put his hand and steady the ark and make sure the throne of God would not fall into the mud. And what happened? God killed him for it. Now, it's really easy for us reading the story and other stories like it in the Old Testament to think that this can't possibly be a manifestation of God's character. God can't possibly be like this, can he? Really? Killing someone on a, on a technicality? In fact, um, some people have come up with other theories about this. A lot of commentators and really brilliant people have come up with these theories that basically these passages are, here's one explanation, that these passages are pre-scientific. And therefore, um, they're interpreted by those who saw them in light of their own inaccurate theology. In other words, Uzzah might have just happened to have a heart attack right there and die. And because these primitive nomadic people were, were living in this superstitious myth kind of a, of a world, supernatural world, they just said, God killed them. But actually, it was, it was quite a, 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 med- it was a medical reason. Um, yet... When we look at the background of the text carefully, the real answer is made very clear. Um, in the Old Testament, each of the 12 tribes of Israel were given different tasks and different allotments of land. It was a, it was, it was a we're all in this together mentality. It was, it was a team sport. So by tribe and, by, and then by family, everything, was div- everything that a nation needed to do was divvied up between them. And the Levites were given the honor and the task of, of tending to the priesthood. They were the ones who would minister to God and have stewardship over the temple and also to educate the people. They were in charge of the educational system of the, of the nation, to educate the people of Yahweh and the story and the plot and where they fit within the plot and all of those things. So Levi was the tribe, but within Levi, there, was a cert, there were certain key families, and each family was given a particular task over the priesthood. And the family of Koath, they were separated for the task of taking care of the vessels of God, especially when it came to transporting them. They were like the holy movers. They were the holy U-Haul people. They knew how to handle the holy vessels used only for the presence of God. And the ark was designed to be carried by the Levites and not just by any Levites, but only the Levites of the family of Koath were to carry the ark. This is in Numbers chapter 4, 15. And you have to understand, this is not an individualistic society. This is a collective society, which means from birth, you knew exactly where your place was in the world. So if you were born of the family of Koath from the time that you could think you were being taught how to care for the vessels of the Lord. You were raised in the education of precision of how you properly care and transport the ark. And one of the things that they were taught since they were small enough to to start thinking their own thoughts was you never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, touch the ark. Because the day you touch it, the second you touch it, you're going to die. It'd be like if you were raised in an electrician household and you were going to be a, you know, a high-voltage electrician. I mean, basic. Rule number one, don't grab that thing. You're going to die from it. You respect this electricity. It's going to get you. This is what they would have known. In other words, on one hand, Uzzah might have been... Uh, acting out of goodwill, but he was also, with no, on the other hand, he was without excuse. One principle that was 
ground into them was they knew not to touch it. The ark was never supposed to be transported on an ark, or on a cart, first of all. It was also to be transported on foot so that it wouldn't fall. And it was to be transported by a certain family member of, of the tribes of Levi. Well, even after knowing this, I think we still think, wait a second, okay, fine. His motives were pure, so he touched the ark, but come on, come on. He was just trying to help. In fact, shouldn't heaven thank him? He was only trying to keep the throne of God from falling in the mud. And this thinking right here betrays in all of us the same problem that was in David. We don't realize the gravity of the problem. We don't understand what's going on here. The presumption and the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was that he assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. But there was nothing about the earth that would have desecrated the ark at all. The dirt was lying on the ground doing what dirt was made to do by God. Turn to mud when it gets wet. Turn to dust when it's dry. It's following the laws of God. Humans are the ones that have not followed the laws of God. The mud obeys the law of God day in and day out, doing exactly what God has created, to, created it to do. There's nothing defiling about the earth. It's the hand of mankind that is defiled. There's sin that's defiled that God said, I don't want man's hand on my throne. He didn't say, don't put dirt on my throne. In a word, Uzzah broke the law of God. I mean, just to make it simple, Uzzah broke the word of God as man tends to do and, man, and God killed him for it. And yet, this still seems like a manifestation of cruel and unusual punishment, I think, to us. But when you look into the Pentateuch, you know, there's about 30 offenses, about 30 uh, capital offenses of God's command in the Pentateuch. There's murder, right? Um, homosexual, homosexual acts is also a capital offense in the Pentateuch. Um, committing adultery. Oh, um, here's one that we love to use on Noble. Sassing your parents could get you killed. We just say, just saying, buddy. I'm kidding, we don't do that. <laughs> you guys are like... Honey, call CPS after church. <laughs> um, it was a capital offense to go to a fortune teller, according to the Pentateuch. And we modern people look at that and we say, well, how primitive? How primitive is that? That can't possibly be the character of God, particularly in light of the New Testament's attributes of God of goodness and mercy in the New Testament, we tend to say. We like the New Testament, we like the New Testament, but the wild, hot-tempered God of the Old Testament, we don't really know what to do with him. But if you think about it, the real mystery is not that a holy and righteous God should exercise justice. Think this through with me. What is so mysterious or strange, anyway, about a holy creator punishing disobedient creatures? What's so strange about that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Or I think they could have picked it up in the proper way. At that point, they could have, yeah, they could have said, okay, let's do this right. But this was, I mean, it shouldn't have fallen in the beginning. Because it would, if it would have been done rightly in the first place. God made provision for all of this in the law. That's a great question. But the real mystery is not that he punishes disobedient creatures. The real mystery is why God tolerates. If you've been, if you, if you follow, follow Israel's story to this part, you've got to be asking the question. If you take this isolated verse, if you just, if you just stumble across 2 Samuel chapter 6, you're going to go, what is that all about? But if you've been reading and following the whole story, the question that's going to come to your mind is why God tolerates generation after generation, after generation of rebellious people. 
I mean, it's just time and time again on repeat. Why does God have such goodness and mercy on people who commit cosmic treason against his authority? We've got to remember the rules that were set forth at creation. Think of it. God, the omnipotent ruler of heaven and earth, breathed life into dirt and made it his image bearer, shaped a creature in his own image and gave him the highest status on the planet. That's you and me. And then he said to that creature, the soul that sins shall surely die. That's the rule. The soul that sins shall die. So before, before the 30 or so capital offenses that we, we talked a little bit in the Pentateuch, all of creation, at creation, all sin was viewed as a capital punishment. Before we get to Moses, all sin was a capital punishment. All sin meant death in the beginning. Now, is there anyone who could convict a perfect, holy creator who gives life as a gift and as a sheer blessing? He doesn't owe it to any of us. Who can judge him for judging his creatures who have the audacity to sin against him, to go their own way? Is there anything wrong with him killing a creature that has audaciously challenged his authority? The answer is no, no. The fact that we, have to, that we have a shot at life at all is a gift from him. The fact that we're all breathing right now is a gift from God. He doesn't owe us a thing. Have you ever stopped to consider what is involved in just the slightest sin? Have you ever stopped to consider what's involved? In the smallest sin, I am saying that my will has a right that's higher than the rights of God. In the smallest act... I am saying, I know better. I'm an exception. My will, my thoughts have a right that's higher than the right of God. In the slightest sin, I defy the authority of God. I insult the majesty of God. I challenge the justice of God. In the slightest sin, the tiniest one. But we're so accustomed to doing it, aren't we? We think it's no serious matter to disobey the king of the universe in something that we would consider small. We say, oh, come on. We say to God, oh, come on. As if we even have the right to, that already describes we don't get the problem. But instead of destroying mankind in that moment, in that act of revolt back at creation, what does God do? Adam and Eve sin, and God comes into the garden. Where are you? He pursues. Instead of when they sin, him just going, do over, he comes. Where are you? He pursues. And the rest of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is God in his grace pursuing sinful, rebellious people. You guys, the history of the Old Testament is the history of repeated episodes of the manifestation of God's grace. That is really the history of the Old Testament. It's God kindly, mercifully, graciously pursuing his people. The Old Testament is all about grace and love when you consider who God is and who man is. He shows continual mercy and forgiveness to a, peace, to a people who disobey him all the time. Maybe these stories, this is what I was thinking, maybe these stories of when God kills people is to remind us in the midst of this grace that God is still just and that he doesn't tolerate sin. In fact, he hates it. That the bar has not lowered. You know, in our world, we've become such easy believers and that we've emphasized the grace and mercy of God so much in our Christian context in the West, that we've forgotten that it is conditional. <gasps> Did he just say that? Well, it's true. Think about that. Moses said, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you won't be blessed. What is that? 
Those are called conditions. In fact, I will say the grace of God is so gracious because Jesus took the punishment for our breaking of those conditions. If it was unconditional, Jesus coming would mean really not much of anything. But the fact is, it is conditional. We've broken those conditions, and Jesus came to pay that price for us. God didn't say, well, you know, mankind will be mankind. (laughs) He didn't, that was not his attitude. The bar did not lower. And maybe the stories like this remind us He hates sin. He hates our sin. And it's only by the grace and mercy of God that any of us are breathing now. This is grace. He loves us. But we should all feel grateful to be alive right now in light of his holiness. We've become so accustomed to God's normal pattern of grace and mercy that not only do we take it for granted, but we start demanding it and we get offended when he doesn't give it. Oh, gosh, we've become so sick. We don't, like David, we've missed it. We don't get the problem. We think we can just come in and say, hey, God, hop on my new cart. Mm -mm. God says, whoa, wait a second. We need to understand the difference between justice and mercy. The minute you think God owes you mercy, a bell should go off in your brain that warns you that you're no longer thinking about mercy. Anytime you think of rights or owing you something or you feel that way, you're not thinking about mercy. You're actually thinking about justice. And believe me, you do not want that. Listen, God is never obligated to be merciful to a rebellious creature, ever. He doesn't owe us a thing. He doesn't owe us mercy. The God of the Bible is both just and merciful. So, do you understand? Breach. That's the problem. There is a breach. We are owed his justice for the slightest sin is so arrogant. It's such an affront to who he is. The slightest. We can't touch him. So, ironically... From this, we have the solution. Here's the solution. Well, there's a few of them. One is, notice in David, there's fear. Look at right here. David was angry, and David was afraid. In other words, he got his awe and reverence and holy fear of God back. His son, Solomon, would later pen, the fear of the Lord is the beginning point. It's where we start. In fact, I will be so bold as to say, if you've not experienced the fear of the Lord because of the breach between you and him and your sin, if you've not experienced a level of that terror, that you're not welcome in God's presence, that there's a problem here, you may not be a Christian. Every Christian, this is part of our testimony, there's something that I can't fix on my own. There's an offense to God that makes me liable to his judgment. And all of us should fear what David, should go through what David, David was afraid. And look what he said. Look at his, how? Uh, Oh, no, 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 don't do that. How? Come on, please. How, there it is, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How does this work? How can I breach this gap? I thought it was easy. Now now it seems impossible. That That experience is what all of us should and I would say need to come back to on a repeated basis. Wow, on my own, I cannot fix this. On my own, I have no business in the presence of God. I dare not reach out and just even touch. I dare not be so presumptuous that I can even lend a hand at all. Not even met a, a, a new cart. We come with our religiosity and our, look at how good and how, I got a new cart for you. You know, we, we think we have something to contribute. Oh, let me stabilize you. I mean, you, 
We need to understand the problem. There's a breach. So fear. David is no doubt angry at himself. Um, the parallel passage for this is 1 Chronicles 13, where he says, then David, uh, David, this is his second go at this, David summoned the priest Zadok, Abiathar, and the Levites, finally he got the right tribe, he's getting to the right family, Uriel, Asahi, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab, and he said to them, this is what he said, this is in 1 Chronicles, he said, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. He's read now. David, this is a little more researched at this point. He says, so consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I prepared for it. Now here, listen. Because you did not carry it the first time. So David gets it now. He goes, the Lord our God broke out against us, referring to this incident, because we did not seek him according to his rules. That's what David says. David's mad at himself a little bit. I think we all go through that when we come to Christ. We go, ah, I've sinned. Peter expressed the same thing when Jesus said to Peter, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, look, I've been fishing all night. Really? Okay, but because it's you, fine, I'll do it. And the, you know, the boat almost sank with all the fish. Remember what Peter did? He got on his knees and he said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That's the beginning of wisdom, Solomon would say. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah has this vision of God in his temple and his presence the kebab, the glory, shaking the earth, shaking the foundations of the temple. What is, what's the beginning for Isaiah? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. There's a breach between me and you that I can't even hope to, to get across it. I'm helpless. It's insurmountable. It's insoluble. I can't do this. Beginning of wisdom. That's it. That's it. That's number one. Secondly, David repents and obeys. Not only should our fear put the fear of God in us, should our sin put the fear of God in us. Secondly, it, it, it begs repentance. The second time around, David approaches God the way God prescribed. No more carts. Just... Exact, okay, what is he doing? He's saying submission. He's saying, okay, you know, I get the, you know, okay, uncle. So he's waving the surrender flag. Okay, I'm done. Repentance, surrender. I'll do it just like you say. Fear leads to obedience. Okay, God, just, have you ever prayed that prayer? Your, your, your own sin has put the fear of God in you and you just say, what do you want me to do? What do you want? Your terms, not mine. Blank check. It's all yours. What? You don't owe me a thing. Maybe you won't even answer me. You don't owe me. But God, help. What do you want me to do? I'm yours. I'm not holding anything back anymore. I'm yours. Third, sacrifice. David sacrificed, did you notice, every seven steps. This is the answer to the plot line. So in ex at the end of Exodus, here's what's really interesting. They build the tabernacle, and then Moses can't even go in it. It's this weird thing. The Exodus ends like that. The whole plot is how can God and man come together? And God says, build a tent. Make it look like Garden of Eden, and bring them all together. <clears throat> and at the end of Exodus, this antithetical thing happens. Not even Moses can go in. And it's got you wondering, how do we get in? We've got the place. We've got the, how do we get in? And the answer to that question is the incredibly tedious book of Leviticus, if you've ever gotten around to reading it. And let me just give you the sum up. The answer is only through blood. Only through blood. How can mankind come back to the presence of God? Only through sacrifice. 
only through the blood of, of something innocent. David finally is understanding that. That's Yom Kippur. That is every seven days, they would, Israel would make a move into God's presence to the tabernacle, but through sac- vicarious sacrifice. And once a year for the whole nation, David here is going one, two, three, four, five, six, stop, sacrifice, praise. Six days, you, you, you get the pattern, it's the creation pattern. Work, 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 stop, rest, praise by sacrifice. Work, 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 stop, rest, praise, sacrifice, work, work. That is the rhythm. David finally aligns himself into the rhythm of the cosmos, put into the fabric of how things are even created. Work, 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 rest, praise. And finally, humility. David trusts in the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, the provision that God made in Leviticus, but he also gives up everything. If you noticed, David takes off his kingly robes. He wears the under, a, a linen ephod. That is the undergarment of a priest. That's the idea. It's not that he was half naked dancing around. That's not the idea here. That's not why McCall was, was upset with him. It's not like he was indecent. No, he, he took off his kingly robes and he became like one of the priests that were already bringing it. You know what he's doing? He got off his throne and he said, the rightful king is here. It's Yahweh. That's what's going on. David abdicates his throne. He gives up his power. He's so humbled. He's so repentant. He's so surrendered that he takes off the crown. He takes off the robes. And he becomes just like, just like any priest that would usher in the presence of God into mankind. And he celebrates How can we do it? Only when we realize, only when we realize that this is what the son of David did for us. Jesus, the rightful king. Remember what he did? So that you and I could be on the throne. We could be ushered in as the heirs of heaven. Jesus, the rightful king, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. But by the end of the week, he was wearing a mockery crown of thorns. He was hung as a criminal on a Roman cross. He was stripped naked and laughed and shamed at. The one that rightfully deserved glory and honor gave it up and became, as Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews calls, he became the ultimate priest, sacrificing not a lamb but sacrificing himself so that we could be ushered into the presence of God. The breach finally, finally completely closed. There is now no separation between mankind and God. That's what we celebrate here today. This represents that you are no longer separated. There's no more breach. But only if you come through this way. Only this. You come through any other way with a shiny cart or proud of yourself for this or that or finding your identity in something else or whatever it might be. You come by any other way, you dare not. That is the warning of the Hebrews, uh, of the book of Hebrews. You dare not come any other way. This is it. And this is a story of resurrection. Let me do something with you here, because I think it's fun. Let me, you want, is it okay if I nerd out on you a little bit? Just say yes. Okay, fine. I'll, fine, I'll do it. A, let me show you these two stories. In 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 22, what happened? The ark is taken. 
and um, house of Eli is eliminated. That's a nice way of saying they were killed. Eliminated. B, um, 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 6, verse 9. What happens? The ark is in the Philistines' territory, Philistia. Okay? Oh, I don't know if this is going to work, you guys. If you were able to see it, you would say it would be B, A, B, C, going down to the middle. C is uh, the ark returns on a cart. Israelite sin of the ark. So they, it returns, but not all the way. There's, they've sinned. And then D would be down here. The ark is with Abinadab. Now, if you were to compare this story with our story, if you went to 2 Samuel, it would do the same thing, but in reverse. C would be still in the middle, but one down, and the ark returns on a cart. B would come back out here, if it would let me do it. The ark is now in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And finally, A would come out here, the restoration of the ark to the tabernacle, or the house of Saul, and the house of Saul is eliminated, and the restoration of the ark. It's, a, it's what we call in the, for us nerdy people, it's called a chiasm. It's written chiastically, on purpose, and what it shows is a death and then a resurrection. If you can follow my cursor up there, a death down at this angle and then a resurrection back out. God is restored again. My point is, even literarily, it's written to make you think this way. If you were to put them together, they, they perfectly match. The ark's taken, the ark's in exile, the ark returns on a cart, the ark's with Abinadab, and then in our story, the ark returns in a cart, the ark's in the house of Obed-Edom, and then there's the restoration of the ark back into Jerusalem. This story is about resurrection. The first half of the story describes the death of the Mosaic order and the end of the tabernacle system in Shiloh. It's the death of one kind of worship. But then the second half of the story, our passage today, narrates the resurrection of a new order. This is why resurrection's on my mind. Death brings life. This is the rebirth of what died in Aphek. It hasn't happened yet. Even through the reign of Saul, he was content to leave it there in that house. David realizes, no, this is a problem. The, the ark of God, the presence of God is to be with his people. Remember, Moses, God said to Moses when he was mad at them for the golden calf, he said, you guys go to the promised land and I just won't come with you. I'll even send an angel to make sure you get in, but then I'm, we're done. And Moses said, no, I don't want to go unless you're with us. The promised land is not the promised land unless you're with us. That's the whole thing, you being with us. David is saying the same thing. He becomes king and he's like, there's unfinished business from that epic battle with Aphek. The ark is still not with us. I can't be a king. In fact, there's no nation. The real king is not here. And in walks David, bringing the presence of God. And no wonder there's joy. No wonder there's exuberant joy. This is about the return of the king and not David. God is the king of the earth. And David is in exuberant joy by this. David and the entire nation... David dethroned himself. And that's what we have to do too on a personal level. So here's what we need to do to breach the gap. We need fear. Wrap your mind around the real problem here. It's insoluble. It's insurmountable. We need fear. We need obedience. Surrender. Whatever you want, God. What do you want? That's it. Fear naturally brings this. It's a, it's, it's, you know, when you're wrestling, when you're wrestling with a, an animal or, so, you know, they find, when they finally relax and say, okay, whatever. That's the idea. Okay, fine. Third, to sacrifice. Someone else vicariously sacrificed for us. The son of David got off his throne and died a sinner's place for us to come. And finally, that means we need to do the same. He says, come follow me, take up your cross. Follow, in other words, 
Get off the throne of your own heart. What is it that you're holding on to that this one's mine? How, realize how audacious of us. Get off the throne of your own heart. Let the real king come in. That is the only way, only through here, only through this, we dare not come another way. And now we get to put this into action by celebrating this way. Take a moment. We've got time. Take a moment and think and meditate about this. Is there any other way that you have attempted to come to God? In fact, let's close our eyes. Let's just have a moment of privacy. Are you confident in something else? Have you found yourself depending on something else or someone else for your right standing before God? Do you consider yourself an exception to the rule? When was the last time you let the breach that without Jesus exists, when was the last time that that scared you to your core? That it became the problem that outweighed all the other problems. And all the sins that you struggle with currently, can you let that be a reminder of the breach and what he did to bridge that gap? 